This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Today we have a, um, a podcast on heart disease in patients with um, breast cancer. And uh, with us today, we have a very special guest, Ramey Marshall at the uh, Arkansas Cardiology and, and part of the Baptist Health Heart Institute in Little Rock, Arkansas. So, you know, Ramey, thank you for taking the time and, um, uh, and accept to be part of this podcast at myheart.net. Thanks, Ramey. Yeah, Dr. Bouchard, thank you for having me. And I appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you and your audience um, talking about a, a topic I know you and I have interest in, but really we're seeing growing interest uh, internationally about something that has become a, a very complex uh, and, and broad problem. So I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to spend some time with you and your audience today to try to spread some awareness on this topic. Yeah, that's I think that's the main purpose. And uh, today on, on our podcast, we'll discuss, you know, why it's important to take care of your heart, particularly if you have breast cancer. We'll try to look at, um, you know, who are the patient at risk for cardiac problem when they're treated for their breast cancer. We'll discuss a little bit about the cardiac complication. Uh, how can we prevent them and how can we treat them? And also what kind of follow-up, you know, uh, do we have for our patients that survive breast cancer to make sure that they remain healthy, uh, both from, you know, the heart standpoint, as well as from their breast cancer. So let's dive in, uh, if you don't mind, Remy. And, and uh, as we all know, advances in screening and, and treatment have improved uh, very much the survival for patients with breast cancer. We have uh, today about uh, 3 million breast cancer survivors in 2020, and it's projected to be 5 million by 2030. And I think we can say that in average, you know, the survival for women with breast cancer is excellent. And um, about 90% have a chance to survive you know, five years. But obviously, it takes a team approach. I mean, if you have a woman that's found to have a breast cancer, she has a primary care who usually refers this patient to an oncologist. She'll get to meet a radiation oncologist and a lot of time even a um, someone in pharmacy that specializes in oncology. So... Remy, how does a cardio-oncologist fit in this picture? Uh, I think you hit on it right there. We kind of serve as the quarterback for what really should be um, a very collaborative partnership amongst each of those specialties. Um, and then it, it can even extend into um, some more specialized uh, specialties if, if needed, uh, advanced heart failure, electrophysiology, interventional cardiology, interventional radiology. So it really can be a it, it can be and it needs to be a, a collaborative team approach uh, for what ends up being a very complex issue for a lot of patients. Um, and as you touched on, a very growing population, which is a good thing. I mean, I, I don't want to discount the research and, and efforts that have gone into improving the survival, both from better screening techniques uh, to, to more targeted therapies. But with it, for some, there can be some attenuation in that survival uh, because they're succumbing to some of the um, uh, morbidity and some of the side effects long-term of, um, of these therapies that treated their cancer. So trying to be 
trying to identify those patients from the front end, be with them through their treatment, and stay with them uh, in some cases beyond treatment. Um, it really takes a collaborative uh, effort amongst the whole team taking care of that patient. Sounds good. So let's say, for example, you have a woman that just discovered she has breast cancer. Um, she obviously has enough to worry about. So what should, why should she be concerned about her heart? Well, I think, you know, cardiotoxicity in relation to breast cancer really dates back to the 70s when we started using um, anthracycline therapy, at that point, Donna Rubison. And that's really the, the first dated publication of cardiotoxic effects from uh, cancer therapy dates back to the late 60s when at that time it was being used uh, for hematologic cancers in uh, children. They saw that some of the those kids were developing heart failure symptoms and readily identified that connection with anthracyclines. And then fast forward that to the, to the 1990s when uh, some more targeted therapies, which we'll talk about later on, uh, one of which is trastuzumab comes along. And in some of those early seminal trials, we see of 30% association of, uh, of heart muscle dysfunction uh, and in some cases, clinical heart failure. So a lot of these patients, you know, those are the cornerstones of therapy for these people. And, you know, we'll talk, I'll try to provide some some details and, and, and statistics a long way. I don't want it to, uh, for it to become too dense though, because ultimately if a patient has a 5% chance or a 15% chance of cardiotoxicity, the patient really only cares about whether or not they are one of those patients who get it. So we use those, those numbers and statistics that we're going to talk about today to try to identify patients who are at higher levels of risk. To a patient, they really just care about if they are that one person or if they do succumb to that complication. So for them, I would say most patients, this is just another risk factor for heart disease. And if they're going to get some of these treatments, then they need to consider themselves at risk. And I think it's our moral responsibility to educate them on potential adverse effects, um, not necessarily to scare them, but to um, prompt awareness um, for early signs of toxicity that they can look out for. And then on our end, for us to know who those patients are, that we need to follow um, either a little bit closer, uh, more often, or even for an extended period of time? Well, you know, I think you're preparing, looking a little bit into the literature of cardio-oncology. I mean, we all know that obviously in the general population, cardiovascular disease is number one cause of mortality, you know, in men and women. But, you know, women with breast cancer have much higher risk, you know, compared to um, age match control. And this made me realize that taking care of the risk factors you know, and the comorbidity, you know, to that not only and living a healthy lifestyle, not only reduce the cardiovascular mortality, but also increase the chance of breast cancer survival. And that's, you know, I think that's really um, a big aspect, an aspect that we don't really realize, you know, always in taking care of our patients. Yeah. So some of these statistics were, as you mentioned, um, were really particularly, um, you know, concerning, you see here uh, CDC data um, estimating a, a two to six time higher mortality risk for uh, from cardiovascular disease 
for breast, breast cancer patients, breast cancer survivors compared to the general population, which you highlighted. And, you know, I think that as you pointed out, cardiovascular disease still remains the number one cause of mortality for women in the United States. But the particular concern I think that many of us have is that there still is a, a far too great um, uh, lack of awareness amongst the population for that problem, especially when you get into racial disparities, um, some of the minority groups. Um, so when you add that to patients who have uh, breast cancer, uh, which we'll talk later on, there, there really can be quite a few overlapping risk factors as well that are shared between cardiovascular disease and development of, of breast cancer. And then you have a treatment that you're using for the breast cancer that has now become an additional risk factor for those patients. It really can put some of our patients, um, particularly for you and I who you know, live here in, in the Southeast, um, you know, right in the density of cardiovascular disease, it really puts our patients at, at risk long-term uh, of succumbing to some of these cardiovascular toxic complications. So uh, let's say, for example, a woman has a breast cancer and, and she's, uh, you know, she's advised to have, you know, chemotherapy for her treatment. Um, and I don't know whether we need to get into details of, you know, which patient with breast cancer need chemotherapy, but, you know, um, uh, I think this is probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but let's say you need chemotherapy as a treatment for your breast cancer. You know, what, who are the patients that are more at risk to develop complications? Do we know? Yeah, well, I think you started to go into something that we probably ignore too often. And, and I think for the sake of the talk, we just need to address a little bit, which is the overall landscape of the approach to breast cancer, because um, it, it really becomes a, a dense topic, uh, to point it bluntly. And I think this is part of what um, causes a lot of you know, other cardiologists and providers, a lot of angst, um, you know, that they, they appreciate how complex this is. So forget about the patients. I mean, even the providers taking care of those patients can really have a lot of anxiety because of the complexity here. And I think it is important that we just realize that in, in cancer in general, but especially breast cancer, this is a very heterogeneous diagnosis. It's a very heterogeneous pathology. And it really depends on the subtype of the cancer. Um, so in that case, we're, we're talking about whether or not it's a hormone receptor positive or negative breast cancer, whether or not it's a um, epidermal growth factor or HER2 positive breast cancer, whether or not it's a triple negative breast cancer. Uh, it depends on the stage at diagnosis, the natural history, the expected prognosis. And then you get into, based on those things, what your intent of treatment is as that medical oncologist. So for your patient, is your intent a curative approach, which certainly would be the case in non-metastatic breast cancer. So in those situations, you're really looking to eradicate the tumor completely, both from the breast as well as lymph nodes. You're looking to prevent metastatic recurrence and spread and, and ultimately focused on uh, a curative uh, approach to survival. Um, versus a metastatic breast cancer where you, you really are shifting your focus to prolonging life and palliation of symptoms. And from, then it, from there, it just gets really down to the nitty gritty of, of which of these medications you use. Um, but that's where the, the you, you know, 
I kind of just lean on the, the oncologist is, is clearly educated to that and making those decisions. I just need to kind of know based on the treatment they're, they're choosing, A, what is the expected prognosis of this patient's cancer? That way I know um, from my end when I'm formulating a, a surveillance schedule or a treatment plan, I know too um, how aggressive do we need to be. Um, both in starting preventive therapies as well as um, potentially raising a need for holding chemotherapy. But also we have to consider uh, for the patient, um, you know, immediate and long-term risk based on their own inherent risk factors and or presence of heart disease to begin with. So it, it I think in general, when you look at these, I think we're going to see that it doesn't matter which of these therapies you use. There are different types of complications that can arise of different varieties of different severity. It really just depends on what that patient's going to get. But I, I think in general, at this point, if I'm a patient receiving cancer treatment, you have to almost inherently assume that there's going to be some cardiovascular risk, be it very small to high. And I think then you just have to raise the, the question as to the importance of getting screened and then lean on your providers to kind of make the determination of how aggressive that screening um, schedule needs to be. From a patient standpoint, though, let's say you need chemotherapy um, and, um, and we could talk about it later, but, you know, are there some kind of predisposing factor in that patient that can maybe kind of, you know, predict that, you know, we're going to have to watch them a little more carefully. I mean, something like, you know, previous coronary disease or hypertension or, or diabetes. Yeah, I think all of the traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease end up um, being risk factors that identify patients in all these epidemiologic studies as those patients at highest risk of succumbing to uh, cardiac comp complications. So particularly age ends up being by far and away, probably the most um, between that and just pre-existing heart disease end up being the most two common risk factors for a patient um, to end up getting a cardiac complication. So age over 65 is one of concern. Uh, pre-existing heart dysfunction. So if they have pre-existing heart failure, if they've had uh, a prior myocardial infarction, if they have uncontrolled hypertension, uh, if they do have, um, uh, you know, diabetes, each of these things, especially when oftentimes we see a lot of overlap between those problems, um, end up just becoming additive risk factors for the patient. So, you know, I, I think the lowest risk patients are going to be those who do not have preexisting heart conditions, who uh, are young and otherwise healthy, of which we see quite a few of. And then you are faced with the risk factor specific only to that uh, drug that's going to be used. And even then it's impossible sometimes to run away from a potential risk because now they do have a risk factor for heart disease. It just so happens to be it's the medication. Um, but at least from an identification standpoint, beyond the, the therapy itself, I think the things you hit on the traditional risk factors, age, pre-existing heart disease, uh, diabetes, high cholesterol, uncontrolled hypertension, these all end up becoming major risk factors for those patients. Right. So we have someone now treated with um, chemotherapy. <laughs> and um, 
there are, you know, probably four big classes of cardiac complication, and maybe we could kind of talk of them, talk about them, maybe one by one. Number one, you know, is, is about the heart failure and the heart function. Number two, we'll try to discuss a little bit the arrhythmia or the irregular heartbeat that we can see sometimes with these treatments. Number three, maybe the hypertension and probably finish by maybe some um, just arterial uh, or arteriovascular you know, complications, maybe briefly. So let's talk about the main problem that we see that, that we've been seeing for years ever since you know, I was in training, and that was a long time ago, a lot more, a lot longer than you, Remy. Uh, but already in 1990, we were talking about this cardiomyopathy or heart failure induced by, you know, uh, adriamycin, doxorubicin. Let's talk about uh, all the medication and the treatment that can affect heart function first. Yeah, so with breast cancer, you really, you can kind of group together the uh, treatments into the conventional chemotherapy. So these are the anthracycline therapies that you mentioned, the adriamycin or doxorubicin, the red devil, as, as many of the patients um, know them as. Then you, um, and also you have uh, the taxane therapies as well, which is used commonly in breast cancer. Then you get into some of the more uh, uh, novel agents, um, or at least of the past you know, 20 or 30 years, um, trastuzumab or, or Herceptin is the major one there that we're going to talk about. That's a HER2-targeted monoclonal antibody therapy. You then get into the endocrine-based uh, or hormonal-based therapies, so tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors. And then finally, um, well, there are some uh, uh, newer agents, the immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies. Um, not seeing that used as often uh, with breast cancer in particular, um, um, but I am starting to see it, especially some of the more aggressive forms of, of cancer. Um, but then also uh, radiation therapy ends up being a mainstay of treatment for a lot of these patients. And I think when you look at the, those climate classes there, then you can kind of get into the, the complications. And so starting with anthracycline. So this is that conventional chemotherapy. This is the one that was really kind of developed back in the 60s. And these compounds are very good at, at, at killing tumor cells, but um, unfortunately lack specificity in being able to only identify the cancer cells. So they do have a high potential for harming normal cells in the body. And um, I think when we get into the, 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 the mechanism here, it, it's probably beyond the scope of this, but there's some proposed mechanisms for how anthracyclines go about causing um, dysfunction to the heart muscle. But what we do see is that this is almost invariably an irreversible uh, form of heart damage that can happen. And, and it can happen most often in, in a kind of chronic progressive course. So this is something that can really develop later on um, beyond the, the completion of treatment in you know, some cases years down the road. And it can um, it, it is done so in a dose-dependent fashion. So we know that from some very nicely published studies that there is a progressive increase in risk of cardiotoxicity, in this case, uh, dysfunction to the heart muscle and or clinical heart failure. And so when you talk about patients who get a cumulative dose of anthracycline therapy uh, of 400 milligrams per meter squared body surface area, they've been shown to have a 5% risk of develop, developing heart failure uh, throughout their lifetime. 
when you progress up to 700 milligrams per meter squared, that risk of heart failure goes up to close to 50%. And it's a just pure linear dose-based um, uh, or dose-dependent effect that we see. What we are now learning, however, is that there really is no safe dose threshold that can be applied to all these patients. And part of that is because of what we've already talked about, that these are heterogeneous patients. Uh, you know, these patients have their own inherent risk factors. They, they have their own age. They have their own prior history of heart disease. They have their own prescribed therapies. So some, so we know that patients who, what we previously considered to be at a safe threshold, you know, most of our breast cancer patients are not going to receive that, um, that significantly high range uh, or high dose of, uh, of therapy that would otherwise traditionally put them at risk. However, when you compound that with the prescribed trastuzumab they're going to, going to receive and or the pre prescribed radiation therapy they're going to receive and or when you consider this is a 66-year-old uh, patient who has an element of hypertensive heart disease, well, now all of a sudden you're seeing that that patient is going from a less than 5% anticipated risk of heart dysfunction to a significantly elevated risk of, of dysfunction. And so I think it's just important to realize that in this case, uh, anthracycline therapy in and of itself is considered to be a high-risk medication. How high-risk that becomes really depends on the prescribed therapies of, of, of other cancer treatments they're going to receive, as well as their own modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors of heart disease. But that's but anthracyclines, typically the thing we worry about is, is again, dysfunction of the heart muscle, reduced heart function, and um, fortunately, much rarer um, actual development of overt clinical heart failure. Now, when we talk about the targeted therapies, uh, the, the HER2 therapy, trastuzumab or, or Herceptin, these are therapies that were really kind of revolutionized um, uh, medical oncology because what we found is that approximately 20 to 25% of breast cancers overexpress this uh, epidermal growth factor receptor. It's a tyrosine uh, kinase receptor, which really is associated with a much more aggressive uh, disease uh, course. It, it has a much higher metastatic potential um, and a significantly worse prognosis for patients. So when they were able to come out in the 90s with Herceptin, it really revolutionized um, uh, care for these patients who had HER2-positive breast cancer. But unfortunately, as I alluded to earlier, there was a significant incidence of dysfunction of heart muscle and clinical heart failure, which we now have seen is was probably a little bit over-exaggerated uh, initially, but we still can see cardiac dysfunction in upwards of 20% of patients Clinical heart failure, we see in upwards of 5% of patients. But again, it too depends on, is this therapy being used as monotherapy or is this on the background of having received anthracycline and cyclophosphamide therapy? So in that case, it can, it can still, we can see the rise of an incidence of heart failure upwards of close to 30% in those situations. But different from anthracycline therapy, these tend to be, reversible and, um, and, and often uh, not related to a cumulative dose. So in this instance, typically, if we catch somebody who has 
develops some dysfunction of the heart muscle and we hold their therapy, oftentimes we see a recovery, um, but we're seeing that that is not as absolute as uh, once thought either. Um, so that ends up being a, a very um, kind of nuanced thing that you kind of have to, to follow that patient closely. But it's important to know that in most cases, the if they develop dysfunction of the heart muscle with or without clinical heart failure, if you hold their therapy, their cancer treatment, and get them on some heart failure targeted therapy, most of those patients are going to have reversal of their LV dysfunction. And in almost all cases, you can end up getting a patient through uh, the completed course of prescribed cancer treatment. Now, they have also, um, the, the, uh, continuing on, on the, the target, this time, this target chemotherapy, as you mentioned, adriamycin is just like, you know, a shotgun approach, just kills everything, uh, depending on the dose. But, you know, even at low dose, you can already detect some, some damage to the cells. And, and this damage obviously becomes even more extensive, you know, the higher the dose. But now they're coming out with these <clears throat> target chemotherapy, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are oral and, and, and uh, you know, it seems like they're coming out <laughs> with uh, one every month. I mean, it was like just a few, now there's over 70 of them. Uh, and, um, you know, this field is just exploding which is really good for the patient because now you're, you're able to target more. But tell us a little bit about some of these, um, you know, uh, targeted chemotherapy and their effect on the heart. Yeah, so, so some of this was to, to mitigate that, um, the problem we were having initially where we, we were seeing so many uh, just systemic effects. And, and now with more precision, we're able to treat some of these cancers. You know, the, the tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, treatments as you mentioned, is um, really a, a whole discussion in and of itself because of how many different uh, uh, pathways and mechanisms they act on and how many different cancers are, are used. We don't um, you know, typically see this as part of the prescribed therapy for breast cancer itself. Oftentimes, I see these in, uh, in a lot of my uh, renal cell carcinoma patients have them. In those instances, um, you know, it, it really depends on the class of tyrosine kinase uh, therapy. Um, you know, for some of the, the, the ones used for kidney cancer, uh, serafinibs and nitinib, you know, these drugs end up having a very high association with uh, hypertension and, and in some cases can be very difficult to manage. I have several patients who we've really have, have developed, uh, who have developed resistant hypertension um, while on these therapies. And, and, and fortunately, we have. Uh, you know, we had the program in place. We were able to get them in quickly, get them on therapy, and and, and escalate their antihypertensive therapy, uh, working in close conjunction with the oncologist. And in most cases, we still are able to get them back on their therapy once we get their blood pressure controlled. Um, but it, it, that can become a very uh, challenging situation and, and can lead to diastolic dysfunction, diastolic heart failure, um, can put them at risk of having ischemic events, uh, cardiovascular events, uh, strokes. We see increased uh, thrombotic events with some of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, so both uh, venothrombotic events, but also arterial thrombotic events. Uh, so I've, I have one gentleman I, I'm thinking of who had a stroke on, on one of these uh, medications, um, as well as in that same instance, he had a, um, a DVT that we ended up having to put a filter in uh, for him. 
And then some of the more uh, the even newer agents, the immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, medications, fortunately, we don't see a high incidence of, uh, of cardiac dysfunction. Um, and probably in, in that instance, there's a lower incidence uh, than the attention which is given to it. Um, however, I think the you know, attention is really made because the presentation of this toxicity can be um, uh, fatal in, in many cases and, and very dramatic. So in these instances, we worry about myocarditis. So this is inflammation of the heart muscle itself by inflammatory cells can really manifest with acute heart failure. So different from the anthracycline, these patients are going to come in soon after their first or second dose oftentimes of uh, immune checkpoint uh, therapy with clinical heart failure. Uh, they're going to be very sick. They might present with chest pain, um, arrhythmias. Uh, and in those instances, it's very important to get them off therapy, put them on immunosuppressive therapy uh, with high-dose steroids. Um, and, uh, you know, oftentimes you end up needing, needing to put them in the hospital uh, for a period of time um, to stabilize them and also for close monitoring. Yeah, so it doesn't happen very often, probably 1% or less, but, you know, a high right. rate of mortality, about 50% mortality. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, we used to you used to have maybe just four or five of them. Now there's over, over 30, and there's apparently 2,000 undergoing investigation. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I mean, a very powerful way to really beat cancer. Uh, we'll just have to really be uh, careful and watch, monitor the patient very carefully from a cardiac standpoint. Yeah, and once again, this is where I think the, um, you know, the, this field is just, cardio-oncology in and of itself is just rapidly expanding. Um, and it's just has placed a, I mean, again, for the patients, this represents progress for many patients from a cancer front, um, but from, uh, you know, dealing with potential complications, trying to stay educated on these complications, it can really become a a burden on the healthcare system. So fortunately, there's really become increased awareness uh, internationally as well as uh, within the U.S. from many different societies um, who have put out guideline statements and, and, and consensus statements and, and or, you know, in the ACC, for instance, we have, you know, now the an entire journal dedicated to cardio-oncology. So I think fortunately we're starting to see uh, the appropriateness uh, of awareness from a societal standpoint, um, as far as these medical societies and guidelines go, and and hopefully we're going to be able to to get the awareness out, um, uh, you know, s- soon. Um, but what is still lacking in many places is, you know, it was only a few years ago. I haven't seen data from the past couple of years, but as of 2017, I think we had nine formal uh, cardio-oncology fellowship programs in the U.S. Uh, we have many states who still today do not have any formal program whatsoever uh, of cardio-oncology. Um, so you have a lot of patients that, you know, are at risk every single day getting their, these treatments. And what has really been, been eye-opening to me as I've come in and, and started my own practice is it's not a matter of getting awareness out to the general public and and to patients, but, you know, many of, you know, my cardiology partners, uh, many of, you know, my my partners in oncology here in the state who I've had an opportunity to meet do not 
themselves understand the breadth and extent of this problem. Um, and, and so trying to educate, you know, all of these people can, it can really be um, a significant responsibility on, on the healthcare system here. So I'm, I'm very glad to see, you know, the American societies and the European and the British, and the Canadian societies, and they really have, have been both from a cardiology standpoint and uh, oncology standpoint, a, a collaborative effort here to uh, increase that awareness and, and try to keep up with the, um, uh, these newer agents that are constantly being developed and put out there with support of um, observation as well as clinical um, randomized trials. Well, great. So, I mean, just to wrap up on the complications, mostly the big one is, is the heart failure and the, and the heart function that tends to really go down. We have some arrhythmias, uh, some problem with hypertension, and sometimes uh, clogging up some of the arteries, causing a stroke or even a heart attack. But so we, we talked about the patient at risk. Uh, we talked about some of the problems that can happen. How do we mitigate the risk? I mean, how do we kind of, how do we reduce the chance of getting this heart failure, for example? Well, I think um, it goes back to what we've already talked about. So I think starting with the stratification of, of baseline risk. Uh, so doing a risk assessment, again, I think if all things are equal, every single patient, really, if they're being prescribed one of these therapies, needs to have a full comprehensive risk assessment done. Unfortunately, we just don't have access to do that appropriately right now. But if, if you're going to idealistically come up with a plan, then I, I think every single one of these patients getting a prescribed treatment needs to have a comprehensive risk assessment for their inherent risk factors for uh, cardiac disease, as well as their age and what your prescribed uh, or intended prescribed therapies are going to be for that patient. Uh, Dr. Herman up at Mayo Clinic, they really published a nice uh, kind of scoring system that they use, uh, the cardiotoxicity scoring system. And, and this is a score that I have implemented from day one into our practice to, to really, uh, I've put, put this together on a pamphlet and, and provide it to the oncologist to help them uh, it, it's nice because it helps them identify potential patients who need to, to, to either come to us directly on the front end or for them to really have a heightened sense of awareness for. So it goes through there, again, those same risk factors we talked about as well as which of these prescribed therapies they're going to get. Uh, and then almost inherently, everyone's going to need some baseline imaging to establish a baseline uh, level of heart function. So at this point, all major societies are recommending that that be done with uh, transthoracic echo and specifically, um, if able, adding uh, 3D echo techniques uh, for volume and, and, and LV function, as well as uh, doing uh, LV longitudinal strain measurements, if able, as well. And these, these are used um, mainly to uh, provide us ways of, of increased sensitivity at detecting complications on a subclinical basis. So, you know, I tell people that you're coming in for a baseline risk assessment. That way we can kind of prescribe a treatment plan and or a surveillance plan for them based on their, their risk. So if it's someone who's at low risk, for instance, and, you know, they probably are fine to just get that baseline echo and then an echo at the completion of treatment. But if you have someone who you know is a high-risk patient, you are really need to be hypervigilant about getting these patients in 
you know, as often as every three months, sometimes as often as every other cycle uh, to repeat a, uh, a, a, an echo to check their strain, to look for any subclinical changes. Um, you know, there's some variability on the de definitions here, but most agree that if you're using strain, if there's a relative drop of 15% or more in the LV strain value, that that could represent some significant underlying, uh, at least subclinical uh, change in their heart function can be predictive of um, future drops in their LV ejection fraction. Um, certainly if you have a 10%, uh, an absolute 10% uh, reduction in LV ejection fraction to a value of less than 50%, that certainly indicates cardiotoxicity. Uh, you know, each of these things should undoubtedly uh, warrant sending someone to a cardio-oncologist um, and po possibly um, necessitates a suspension of cancer treatment um, and to allow the patient some time to get on some heart failure targeted therapy. And then what we don't use as often in, in our own practice just because of some of the limitations is uh, the cardiac markers. Um, so the cardiac troponin is one which has received some, you know, a lot of data for, and really some, some good data. So cardiac troponin has been shown to have, to, to be very predictive when, when positive of patients who are going to have adverse effects down the road. Conversely, negative cardiac troponin has been shown to have a very high, uh, upwards of 99% negative predictive value at predicting patients who are going to do favorably. Um, in, in our instance, just because of lab location, um, it becomes a little bit more difficult. So I tend to reserve the cardiac uh, marker testing for my highest risk patients. Um, I think if I had a lab here in-house, I would be utilizing it much more frequently. Um, looking at the other cardiac marker, BNP or, or NT pro BNP, there's really a lot of mixed data. Um, and, and quite frankly, it just isn't near as strong as the, the data for cardiac troponin. Um, so I, I tend to not use it as often, um, but I think between uh, the, the the echo and the the cardiac troponin, these are you know fundamental to the cardio oncology practice as far as monitoring these patients during uh, before, during, and after treatment. So you try to implement this um, these kind of indicators of people at risk, and you follow those you know obviously more carefully with primarily with the echo EKG and, and the echo and follow these patients serially uh, during that year of treatment, you know, for their breast cancer. Uh, and, um, and then what about their um, healthy lifestyle and the risk factors or treatment of their hypertension or cholesterol? I mean, you're pretty aggressive with that. Uh, I am. And, and this, so this is, uh, I think this goes, this goes back to, you know, how to set up your cardio cardio-oncology practice. <clears throat> I think it, it really depends on the setting. Um, you know, I'm in a, a private practice setting um, at a, you know, at Baptist uh, hospital here in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's the largest healthcare system in the state, but it's a non-academic um, uh, uh, institution. And I say that because we don't have our own oncology program here in-house. So it becomes a little bit more disjointed than um, if you were at an academic center with an oncol with a you know department of medicine, a department of oncology, department of, of cardiology, um, and all the diagnostics being done in-house. So I tried this initially to to 
allow to to kind of make a, a easy pathway for oncologists to send in patients for their screening echo, for instance. And then we could determine at that point whether or not they need to be seen. Well, what I found is that it ended up being much more difficult for me to keep up with who do I need to order that echo on in, 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 in three months versus six months. And then patients really, I realized, lacked awareness of why they were um, coming in. And and for me personally, I get a lot of pleasure um, professionally just from uh, doing primary prevention and primordial prevention on patients. So talking, about, you know, I think I get just as much at keeping someone from developing heart failure as as treating their heart failure. And I, I feel as, as high of an obligation to do that than, than to actually treat it to begin with. So I ended up just bringing all the patients in. When they get their echo, they come to see me. And we sit down immediately after that echo and explain, you know, I try to get some sense of their awareness as to why they're here. Um, most of the time that the oncologist and or radiation oncologist has, has really um, educated them on these potential effects. But then I go a little bit deeper and explain some of the potential manifestations of heart failure to look out for. So, you know, shortness of breath, if they're getting short of breath, laying in bed, if their exercise tolerance acutely drops, that they've developed palpitations or chest pain. We, we talk about these things to look out for. I kind of counsel them not as a means of, of, of scaring them, but just to impress upon them the need for them to uh, continue follow-up. And then finally, the importance of adhering to some, uh, some heart-healthy lifestyle choices, um, you know, and, and be it diet uh, or alcohol or obviously nicotine cessation, um, but getting more active. We see that you know, we, we know that there was some data I saw that, you know, about 12% of acute myocardial infarctions in the country are directly related to a, um, uh, to an inactive lifestyle. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of data too, that even from a young age, the more active uh, kids are, teenagers are, they have a reduced risk of premenopausal breast cancer. So there's a lot of overlap there between um, uh, counseling patients on heart healthy uh, lifestyle changes as it relates to a reduced risk of heart disease, um, um, cancer, uh, as well as potential cardio-oncologic complications. With that said, there is some interesting um, uh, uh, shifts in some of these risk factors. So alcohol, we end up seeing some protective benefits with alcohol, uh, a light to moderate consumption of alcohol we have seen be protective from uh, coronary artery disease and, and coronary heart disease uh, down the road, we really have, have not seen any protective effects. And in, in fact, mostly detrimental effects of alcohol in terms of, of cancer development of breast cancer. Uh, BMI is another one I was fascinated to see that we know that there is a clear, um, there, there is a clear uh, risk associated with higher levels of BMI and increased risk of, of cardiovascular disease we actually see the opposite for breast cancer, interestingly. So obesity is actually associated with a reduced risk of breast cancer. So, so some of these things are interesting um, uh, to, to look at, but it's important overall to talk to them about, you know, trying to adopt a heart-healthy, plant-based diet um, that has beneficial effects for the heart as well as their cancer and to get out be active, try to get those 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity. 
Um, if they have indications for statin, um, I go ahead and do that. There are some protective benefits of statin that have been shown. And then as far as cardioprotective therapies go, there have been some mixed data as far as the, um, the primary use of a beta blocker or a heart failure medication um, to prevent cardiotoxicities from anthracyclines. We have seen some beneficial uh, effects of the ARB. So candy sartin has some protective effects that have been shown. Carvade law has some mixed data, but, but overall I think positive uh, benefits have been shown with it. So the way I approach initiating those therapies is based on if someone is already coming to me for that initial assessment and they already have hypertension, they're already on uh, any antihypertensive medication or they have heart disease, I just go ahead and shift their medication regimen to one that I know is, is potentially cardioprotective from a cancer standpoint. So I get them on Carvade Law, I get them on an, an angiotensin receptor blocker, or if they come to me without those issues, if they are of a, a particularly high risk, if able, I go ahead and start one or, or both of those um, uh, classes of treatment for them as well, just because of the potential benefit of, of protecting them from cardiac complications. Do you get um, calcium scores on some of your patients as, as primary prevention? I, I do. And the, where I really do that at is I've had a lot lately who, who want to talk about the risk of radiation-induced heart disease in particular. I, I think it's very important as a cardio-oncologist, you know, I, I tell them on the front end, you know, I'm not here to scare you away from your treatment. I'm here to educate you. That way we know what we need to do long-term for monitoring, but but by and large, if, if your medical oncologist or radiation oncologist is urging you to get this treatment, it's based on lots of data that is showing a significant reduction in uh, metastatic spread and or improved survival uh, by getting that treatment. And so, you know, one of the tenets of cardio-oncology is really to minimize any interruption in care. But part of that is to help again, try to stratify their risk. So I have found it to be particularly beneficial to see somebody who I know needs radiation therapy and I'm able to get a calcium score and either show that they have zero calcium and that at baseline their risk is low, albeit not zero, but at least it's low. So they can go into that knowing with a little bit more peace of mind that that I'm at least at the lowest end of the risk here that I could be at. Um, and then conversely, the patients who need to get radiation therapy, um, I use the calcium score once again because there's so much data that it really can improve adherence to statin medications, to, to, to exercise, to aspirin, when you can actually show them. It's that whole seeing is believing concept. When they can see their calcium uh, you know, those patients in particular, you know, we know that radiation is going to have an accelerated effect on atherosclerotic progression. Um, so getting them on their statin medication and, and improving adherence, I have found calcium scores to be very uh, beneficial as well. Plus, I mean, it's really minimal radiation. It's like a, a mammogram. But I thought it was kind of interesting. There was this Canadian National Cancer Surveillance System. Uh, that suggests that postmenopausal women uh, that had the most, um, you know, of cholesterol in their diet had 48% increased risk of uh, breast cancer. 
And, and, and your point about the statin, you know, there may be a link between the cholesterol and breast cancer and, and probably provide the rationale for using the statin, these, you know, treatment, certainly to prevent a recurrence of the cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, patients that have high cholesterol, uh, putting that in perspective with the blood pressure and the, and the actual calcium score really kind of gives you powerful tools uh, to really treat the patient with primary you know, prevention for heart disease, as well as improving their prognosis, I think, uh, mm-hmm. in relation to their breast cancer. You know? I think it makes plenty of sense. So um, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, treatment of, of high blood pressure. We, we've talked about a healthy lifestyle. Um, the, let's say, for example, we have a patient that is actually getting the chemotherapy and you're finding, you know, in the echo that you're following, you're finding some LB dysfunction or you're following, you're finding some heart failure. So how do, how do you treat them? We have good data. You mentioned briefly, you know, some of the beta blockers as, as well as the ACE inhibitor to try to prevent. Let's say you have, you know, LB dysfunction with your treatment. Do you go into the ARNI or, or, you know, more advanced treatment of heart failure? I do. Yeah, I have a, we have, I, I think just expanding data that the, um, the, the RNA class medications are really just having more and more beneficial effects. So I have a, a very low threshold for getting someone, certainly if they have developed um, what I consider to be clinical uh, cardiac dysfunction, I go ahead and get them switched over to an, uh, to an RNA medication. Um, I've also used some of the SGLT2 inhibitor uh, medications on these patients. And I think it depends on the severity of their LV dysfunction. It, if it's somebody who I have done a, um, a surveillance echo on and they're, you know, oftentimes, you know, the strain is not perfect. So it has been shown to significantly improve the uh, intra and intra uh, observer uh, variability when compared to just estimating LV ejection fractions, looking at a, a 2D echo, but it still is not without its own shortcomings. And one of which uh, is, adequate visualization of the endocardial border. Uh, so when you've got someone who's just undergone radiation or surgery, there can be fibrotic changes um, and, and healing changes that really can make it difficult to get good uh, echo windows and good visualization. So if I'm getting some despairing, you know, views on is the LV strain down, is the LV function, you know, LVEF looks about normal, but now the strain is calculating low, or maybe I don't have a, a good visualization of the strain. I have um, uh, good access to cardiac MRI. Now I utilize cardiac MRI pretty readily here at, uh, with our patients. Uh, and, and that's, you know, uh, is understandably the, the gold standard for uh, LV function and volumetric assessment and also has the added benefit of tissue characterization. So, um, you know, I've, I've had the patients who Develop some palpitations on the immune checkpoint inhibitor that you mentioned earlier. Check the cardiac troponin minimally elevated. Well, in that case, I was able to do a cardiac MRI on, on that patient and see subtle findings of what really was pretty consistent with um, a, a mild degree of myocarditis. So we were able to inter, interfere very quickly on that patient, get her started on a um, six-week course of steroid therapy. We stopped her checkpoint inhibitor and had complete resolution of the uh, elevated troponin and symptoms. Um, I had one lady who, very nice, uh, uh, one of uh, one of my 
longest patients now in the clinic. Uh, she's a school teacher. She was put on uh, trastuzumab therapy and ended up, unfortunately, developing, uh, she's in her early 60s, a significant drop in her LV function. We were able to suspend her, her septum therapy. I, I did put her on, um, I believe, an Arnie at that time, as well as a beta blocker. We were able to get her heart function back, her injection fraction. So what my approach to her was her, her EF really went down to about the upper 30s. In her case, she had she was in her early 60s, had a family history of heart disease. Um, her functional status had been somewhat poor um, while getting uh, her, her cancer treatment. I went ahead and got a coronary CTA on her just to definitively rule out um, uh, coronary disease. And in doing so, I did it after a period of time of holding her, her septum therapy, getting her on some heart failure targeted therapy. And we saw that her ejection fraction had improved to the low 50s at that point. So we were able to completely exclude the, the existence of coronary disease. I did a uh, retrospective volumetric uh, EF assessment with the coronary CT, was able to see that her ejection fraction had improved. We got her back on um, her, we rechallenged her with her HER2 therapy. And uh, she is one of the few, um, fortunately, the few cases where she just had another um, significant drop in her ejection fraction. So they estimate about 15 to 20% when you rechallenge them are going to have another drop in their ejection fraction. And she, at that point, went down to the low 30s, developed severe mitral regurgitation. So I really got aggressive with her heart failure therapy at that point. Uh, we ended up not rechallenging her. She um, did not get put back on. Uh, her two therapy. She had completed about 10 months of therapy though. Um, and fortunately, uh, the last uh, echo we had, her ejection fraction had completely normalized. Her mitral regurgitation was now trace. Um, and so we at least were able to have a good outcome there. Um, but that's been my general approach to, to a lot of these patients is um, typically a brief um, suspension if needed of their cancer treatment. And then to really amp up their heart failure therapy, but they really, once the, once you um, get to that point, you really kind of transition to the heart failure guidelines themselves, and you just kind of go based on the goal-directed uh, guideline recommended uh, heart failure therapies at that point. I'm just going to um, remind our, our audience, some of our patients listen to this, that when we talk about ARNI, we talk about Entresto, and when we talk about SGLT2 mm -hmm. inhibitors, we talk about Jardians and Farsiga and Invocana mm -hmm. and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like very good. I mean, you're really implementing, you know, guideline, you know, uh, guided medical therapy in these patients. You're pretty aggressive trying to kind of um, judge when it's a good time to kind of hold uh, some of the medication, the chemotherapy, and when to restart, you know, and so forth. How about if you have someone that is being treated uh, with adriamycin and you have a lower EF, do you use much dexrazoxan? Yeah, I, I myself have not. Um, there's limited data with breast cancer just because it, the doses aren't as um, typically aren't as high as um, what we see with some of the hematologic uh, malignancies, um, especially with childhood hematologic malignancies. So we see a lot more of that um, in, in the FDA recommendations are really for those higher doses uh, in those patients. So I myself have not used much of it. 
I think we have some ongoing clinical trials that are still looking at that because there is clearly benef- you know, significant benefits in protecting uh, LV dysfunction from uh, adriamycin. But, you know, I, I think that the patient population who, who does have pre-existing LV dysfunction would be um, uh, particularly uh, an attractive choice for considering that the role of that therapy in that case. And there are some other, you know, uh, modifying um, things that can be done. So using a liposomal formulation of the uh, anthracycline, giving a con- continuous infusion rather than uh, a, a bolus treatment. <clears throat> These are all things that can be done to modify that risk and, and mitigate that risk of, of LV dysfunction. But I've not myself used uh, dextrazosine that often. You talked a little bit about uh, your case with your immune checkpoint inhibitor, the myocarditis. How do you treat that, uh, Remy? Yeah, so the, the first thing is to suspend therapy. So you have to stop the checkpoint inhibitor immediately. Get them on um, typically a, a very high pulse dose of, of steroids. Um, uh, and then you're going to extend this, the, the immunosuppressive therapy for six to eight weeks in some cases, um, possibly even longer. Um, most of the time, in, in her case, we did not end up hospitalizing her because we actually we, we caught it in a very mild uh, early stage and, and followed her closely. But oftentimes these patients are going to get hospitalized. Uh, I mean, uh, quite frankly, they're often going to present clinically in, in a pretty robust state of heart failure um, and or having, uh, you know, recurrent arrhythmias or ventricular arrhythmias. So, so these patients are going to be patients that you, you know, naturally would, would put in the CCU and watch them closely. But, but pulse dose steroids and stopping treatment are the, the initial name of the game. In, in trying to rapidly treat that inflammatory cascade. Sounds great. Well, let's say, listen, our patient now has survived one year. Um, you know, she, let's say she's in her 60s and and uh, she's placed on, you know, she was a estrogen receptor positive. She's she's placed on Fimarat. I mean, how do you actually follow these patients long-term? Do we have any recommendation of what are the guidelines, you know, um, in following the patients that survive a breast cancer beyond one year? Yeah, the, this is where we the, the guidelines really start to, to kind of lack clarity um, because we, you know, I, I think in general, having setting up a uh, survivorship clinic um I think it is really beneficial to the patients. And I think it's it's probably partly a, a lack of just data as far as the benefits of continued surveillance. How 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 often are we going to be checking echoes every year, every two years, every five years in these patients? We have very good data, uh, or at least some some good consensus in regards to managing patients who have had radiation therapy. So we, we have guidelines support that they need some form of ischemic evaluation every five years. Um, so my preference is to do a coronary CTA on those patients. Um, I've identified um, several patients who have had accelerated uh, proximal or osteal LAD disease. Um, one lady had, uh, uh, had, had high mid LAD disease, uh, really out of proportion with her inherent natural risk factors. And we ended up having to perform a, a PCI with stent placement in, in her case. But we do have good guidelines for, for radiation, uh, getting echoes every one to two years, surveying them for uh, the development of carotid disease. Um, but as far as the, the patient who just had medical, medical exposure uh, to anthracycline therapy, the guidelines are a little gray. Most would say that 
um, you know, if definitely they need to be seen um, up to one year post-treatment. If their LV function has remained completely normal, if their LV strain has remained normal, if they've not had any elevated cardiac troponin during the course of treatment, the likelihood of them developing latent cardiotoxicity is extremely low at that point. And I think that's probably the patient population you can say. These are the things to look out for, uh, but for all intents and purposes, you probably don't need to worry about coming back every year. So that's going to be a naturally low-risk patient to begin with. Conversely, I admitted a lady yesterday who uh, came in with new heart failure symptoms, uh, and she had uh, uh, received anthracycline therapy for non-Hodgkin lymphoma back in 2014. She had her she had risk factors. She was a pack per day smoker. She has uh, high cholesterol. Um, uh, really was not overweight. Had family history of heart disease, but but definitely came in with clinical heart failure and uh, previously received uh, anthracycline therapy um, now approximately seven years ago. I did a coronary CTA on her and again showed that um, um, miraculously she had zero calcium. She had no coronary disease whatsoever. So she had a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Her ejection fraction uh, measured 38%. She had a dilated cardiomyopathy. um, And I have no doubt that the anthracycline played a part of her kind of global risk for the uh, development, whether or not it was the singular event. What we do know, uh, which is interesting, is that the the anthracyclines end up targeting the pre, um, the progenitor cells. Uh, so we end up seeing the second hit phenomenon that that happens with latent LV dysfunction. So you have someone like her who who receives anthracycline, but she is in her 60s and she does have other compounding risk factors and. Then you you know you get radiation down the road or, or some other insult that really can can dramatically um, I think accelerate that presentation of heart failure in that case. So um, you know we do see these latent presentations of of cardio of, of cardiotoxicity LV dysfunction in patients who have received anthracyclines, but by and large these are patients who would have had probably abnormal LV strain or would have been classified a higher risk patient because of their age and or other competing risk factors. And I think those are the patients that you do need to um, try to keep them in your clinic and emphasize the importance of continued uh, follow-up and and trying to aggressively modifying, uh, aggressively optimize these modifiable risk factors that they have. Um, These are very good point. I have, I have this patient that, um, this woman, when she was 21, uh, she was she had a, an abnormal um, growth, so she got a biopsy. She had non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, one mm-hmm. of her uh, cervical node on the right side of the neck, mm-hmm. and she underwent radiation at that time. You know, it was this old cobalt, you know, radiation mm-hmm. tried to limit the field, but I'm sure she got you know quite a bit of radiation. Uh, interestingly, uh, when she turned 60, she was referred to me for an abnormal EKG, an abnormal stress test. So I ended up doing a cardiac catheterization and found that she had a proximal occlusion of the right coronary artery, but good collateral flow. And she had very minimal symptoms. I kind of treated her medically and and watched her over the years. Uh, At the age of 70, you know, she developed some problem with shortness of breath. She she was quite limited. So we had uh, someone reopen the right coronary artery and perform the CTO. This was 10 years after the diagnosis mm. of the, mm. point, the proximal right coronary occlusion. Uh, 
And interestingly, now she's 77, and she has an open right coronary artery, but her shortness of breath has actually increased again. And uh, by echo finding that she's developing AS and, and mitral stenosis, you know, uh, that radiation may have affected, you know, the valves. You know, at that time, she, she denied, you know, that she had infection as a kid or anything like that. And certainly as, as you get older, you get more calcification developing. Possibly cobalt uh, radiation had something to do when she was in her 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're seeing microvascular dysfunction as well. It's really becoming a lot more apparent. Uh, so a lot of these patients are getting, uh, you know, diastolic dysfunction, diastolic mm-hmm. heart failure. And, and this, uh, I, always, I was telling my partner the other day, this, uh, the shortness of breath presentation has quickly become the, the bane of my early practice because <laughs> I just tell people, it's like, I, I cannot promise you that it's this 90% mid-LED lesion, um, you know, that, that potentially can be fixed. I can't even promise you it's the aortic stenosis because maybe it's the underlying diastolic dysfunction you have. And, and so I think we're all kind of battling that, but certainly we're seeing a lot of data that radiation can cause on a microvascular level microvascular dysfunction ranging from microvascular angina uh, to diastolic impairment. Um, and, and I had a similar story. Another gentleman like uh, similar to her had radiation to neck. He developed non-atherosclerotic narrowing stenosis of the carotid artery and also developed carotid uh, sinus dysfunction. So he came to me because of a lot of autonomic issues. So mm-hmm. we ended up having to put a pacemaker in that gentleman. Um, but, but really, we, we just see the whole gamut of complications from rhythm disturbances, autonomic issues, heart failure, coronary disease, valve disease, pericardial disease. When you're talking about radiation, and, and, and really, we're learning, obviously, a higher, higher uh, risk when it's uh, targeted to the left side of the chest. But, but really, any thoracic uh, radiation, there is just no way of escaping uh, the risk of developing uh, latent uh, heart disease uh, from that radiation treatment. Not not meant to scare the patient again, but meant to emphasize the importance of continued close monitoring and surveillance. That way you're trying to 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 pick something up before they come in with, you know, critical aortic stenosis um, or something that might be not reversible at that point. Well, I think it really um, shows that if you take care of yourself and, and practice healthy lifestyle, normally you prevent the recurrence of your breast cancer, but uh, then possibly the development of heart disease. Don't want to treat a cancer patient to end up, you know, being a cardiac patient later on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Remy, thank you very much. A very uh, evolving field. You know, I'm sure the guidelines, um, you know, will keep evolving and, and will keep changing as we kind of discover more about, um, you know, this this heart disease and in women with breast cancer. Um, and, um, and we'll have to stay in touch, man. Yeah. So I want to thank you. I mean, Ramey Marshall from, uh, from Arkansas cardiology at Little Rock in Arkansas. Thank you for taking the time, Ramey, and, and, uh, for elucidating some of the points and questions we had about, you know, cardio oncology. Well, absolutely. Thank you for having me. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.